You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. An Insane Economy This brave new world of global finance made a big impression on me, and after finishing my master's, I co-founded the South African New Economics Foundation, with the lofty aim of promoting a socially just and environmentally sustainable economy. If we can't change the rules of the game, I reasoned, how on earth can we expect the players, be they companies, managers or citizens, to behave differently? I still think that. This wasn't so much trailblazing as hanging on to the comet tails of others ahead of me, most notably those involved in setting up the Other Economic Summit, or TOES, in 1984. This later became the hugely influential London-based think tank called the New Economics Foundation. As I searched in vain for a more sane agenda... The more I looked, the more it seemed to me that the so-called triumph of capitalism was in reality a disaster waiting to happen. The systemic risk of the casino economy was like a creaking San Andreas fault through the heart of Western and increasingly global capitalism. My concern about these issues was in no way due to my prophetic powers. I was only reflecting already widely held beliefs among those in the new economics movement. In retrospect, I'm not sure how many of us really believed that the global financial meltdown would ever happen. It was one of those, taken to its logical conclusion, apocryphal warnings that we whispered smugly under our breaths, rather than shouting it from the rooftops. After all, no one wants to be known as a perpetual party-pooping doomsayer. How strange, therefore, that history has come so close to vindicating our timid cries in the desert. Through my work with the South African New Economics Foundation, I also came across the trends in executive compensation that I've already quoted. Now, I'm not one of those people that buy into the evil empire and Darth Vader stereotypes of business and CEOs. But surely there is something fundamentally flawed in a system that allows corporate and individual greed to spiral out of control to the extent that it has. Surely there is a moral limit to inequity that will, sooner or later, cause the patience of billions of so-called have-nots to run out, thereby starting a bloody revolution against the small number of those who have so much. Little did I know then, in 1997, that the greed treadmill would, in just a few short years, produce a cast of pantomime villains that even Oliver Stone would find incredible. The Belly of the Beast From 1997 to 2001, I'd been getting up close and personal with many of the world's big brand multinationals. After establishing and heading up KPMG's Sustainability Services Division in South Africa, The irony of working for one of the world's largest accounting firms, given what I knew about world finance, was not lost on me. Admittedly, I was not quite in the belly of the beast, but I was connected to the hand that fed, and sometimes stroked or prodded the beast. And so when Enron collapsed and the bombshell exploded, I was an unwitting accessory and an agog spectator to the crime. 
not directly, of course, but by virtue or vice of working for one of the big five and soon to be big four accounting firms. I was not financially affected, and yet somehow I felt I was straddling a fissure that ran right to the epicenter of the quake. Just how connected I was soon became clear. A series of hush-hush emergency meetings were held in the seminar rooms of KPMG, during which we were reassured by our leaders that we were safe, that this crisis had more to do with the lackluster U.S. accounting practices than with the accounting profession per se, that our firm would never cover up for our clients in such a clandestine manner, and that although we could expect significantly more internal risk procedures from now on, other than that, it was full steam ahead, business as usual. Oh, and also that we would be merging with one of the firms in South Africa formerly known as Arthur Anderson, and we should be sensitive to the trauma they had endured. As it happened, when the Enron story broke, I was just putting the finishing touches to the manuscript of my first book, which was to be called Shapeshifting. Between its covers and with the coaching of co-author and former South African mining magnate Clem Sunter, I had tried to capture what I had learned over the past five years about implementing sustainability in business. My argument was that companies needed to shapeshift from aggressive lion-like predators into more caring elephant-like creatures. It was a simplistic metaphor, but it worked. And now, just a few weeks before going to press, we had seen the death roar of one of the biggest cats of them all, an uber-lion. To his credit, Clem Sunter convinced me, kicking and screaming, to change my beloved title to Beyond Reasonable Greed, and we revised and beefed up the content to drive home the message. Now, as I reread some of the observations we made, they seem to be more relevant today than they were in 2001. In the opening chapter, we said, If the unfolding Enron saga is disclosing anything, it is that corporate governance is sometimes not worth the shredded paper it is written on. Bad magic has moved many companies into a state that is beyond reasonable greed. And the public have a good idea of the boundary between reasonable and obscene. These companies' boards probably comprise the normal spectrum of saints and sinners, but somehow they have allowed themselves to be collectively swept up along with the prevailing paradigm of success which is purely financial, and that in turn has led to unreasonable behaviour. In light of Enron's failure, this judgment may be overly kind, and more cases of dodgy accounting, inflated profits, and insider trading by the board may pop up in corporate America and corporate Europe. So we want to break the spell. Reforming the Citadels of Greed as it turned out, many more cases did raise their ugly heads and shudder in the throes of death. In the book Beyond Reasonable Greed, we went on to say that a reformation in business along the same lines as the one precipitated by Martin Luther in 1517 was required. On the 31st of October of that year, he wrote an attack on the sale of indulgences in 95 theses which he nailed to a church door. 
His basic point was that the church had become too interested in enriching itself at the expense of its true mission of providing spiritual leadership. It had lost the support of the population at large with its mercenary practices and obsession with grandeur and wealth. In exactly the same way, the modern corporate world has lost the confidence of the citizen in the street. The high priests of business, the board of directors, are perceived as just another example of a group of privileged people driven by unreasonable greed and feathering their own nests. The customers and shareholders come a poor second, and other stakeholders trail even further behind. The modern equivalent of indulgences is an astronomical salary, a large wad of share options, and a corporate jet. And the modern equivalent of the flowery and unintelligible prayers which the church used to recite in order to extract its indulgences from the peasantry is the purple prose and lofty sentiments expressed by companies in their mission statements, combined with a set of accounts that only the initiated can understand. I left KPMG shortly after the book was published to pursue a PhD in corporate social responsibility. It was time to question my own assumptions again. If anything, my interest in the question of greed had inflated rather than diminished. In the years that followed, first at Nottingham University and then at Cambridge University, I watched as America cobbled together the knee-jerk legislation of Sarbanes-Oxley. I listened as Judge Mervyn King, chairman of the extraordinarily progressive King Code on Corporate Governance, said, Moses tried it and failed. Sarbanes and Oxley tried it, and they will fail. We cannot legislate against dishonesty. And all the while, I clung to my career in corporate sustainability and responsibility, believing that CSR's time had finally, really and truly, come. Accomplice to the Crime Today, in 2010, while the world is still reeling from global recession... I find myself compelled to ask many of the difficult questions that were raised earlier, and more besides. Was this, as MacDonald suggests in his book of the same name, simply a colossal failure of common sense? Was it the greed of so-called bad apples, like CEO Fold, or the bank's insatiable bonus-driven traders? Or was it the pervasive culture of greed in Wall Street as a whole, what about the greed of politicians and governments who were happy to benefit from growth on steroids? And what about Main Street? Wasn't the public, we the people, more than happy to greedily lap up those subprime loans? All this begs the larger question. Is capitalism itself fundamentally flawed? Are we talking about endemic greed built into the free market system? a system which not only allowed but encouraged the fantasy of double-digit profit growth and an endless bull market. Will capitalism, with its short-term cost externalization, with its shareholder value focus, always tend towards greed at the expense of people and the planet? Will the scenario of overshoot and collapse that was computer-modeled in the 1972 Limits to Growth report and reaffirmed in revisions 20 and 30 years later, still come to pass? Has Karl Marx been vindicated in his critique that by design capitalism causes wealth and power to accumulate in fewer and fewer hands? 
Perhaps the trillion-dollar question for me is not whether capitalism per se acts like a cancer greed in the gene of society, but whether there are different types of capitalism, some of which are more benign than others. To date, the world has by and large been following the American model of shareholder-driven capitalism, and perhaps this is the version that is morally bankrupt and systemically flawed. Interestingly, a 2010 Pew poll of the American millennial generation, currently aged between 18 and 30, showed that just 43% still described capitalism as positive, while the same percentage now describes socialism as positive. Management guru Charles Handy seems to agree. Speaking to me in 2008, he confessed... I've always had my doubts about shareholder capitalism because we keep talking about the shareholders as being owners of the business, but most of them haven't a clue what business they're in. They're basically punters with no particular interest in the horse that they're backing, as long as it wins. If we can learn one thing from the age of greed, it is that we have immense power to make change happen on a monumental scale and with lightning speed. Greed has proved to be a high-octane fuel in the rocket engine of globalization, but ultimately it was an economic missile without a moral guidance system. I'm under no illusions that the age of responsibility will vanquish greed. No doubt the selfish gene will continue to spark our evolution. And yet, if we are successful, the age of responsibility will provide capitalism with that much-needed moral compass and systemic CSR will provide business with a mission-critical social purpose. First, however, we must consider what has been going on in parallel to the greed fest, because not everyone has been out to enrich only themselves.